At the end of my grad school experience, we had to write a thesis. And in my thesis, I wanted to apply something from psychology and economics into the, the venture world. So I wanted to measure basically risk preferences of VCs around Europe and, and say, okay, within, you know, what factors will predict how risk averse or risk seeking a venture investor is. Um, and so that also meant I was able to create a survey and send it out to a bunch of interesting investors around the continent. And that also, of course, got me in touch with these really great people and just have coffee chats, uh, which sometimes turn into job interviews. And in the case of Speed Invest, I don't think it worked through that funnel, so to say. But I got in touch with uh, the partner in Berlin, Matthias Sockenfels, and we just had, we had a Zoom conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I learned so much within half an hour. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was like, wow, I got to go work for this guy. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Chris, and you're listening to Nonlinear, the podcast in which we now uncover the lives and day-to-days of marketing professionals, bootstrappers, and community builders. And in this episode, I'm stoked to welcome Christian Allen, growth lead for Bubble Life in NYC. Chris and I get to know each other through a mutual friend. Shout out to Young Chan at this point, works at Speed Invest in Berlin. And we bonded over being chief of staff slash entrepreneurs and residences for consumer social startups in Berlin, a very rare breed of companies. We then dove into building a dating app together as many people who go through the cycle of wanting to build a company do. And now Chris left me and moved to New York, as I said, to lead the growth efforts of Bubble Life there. And in this episode, he speaks about his upbringing, why he moved from SF to Europe initially, why he moved at the same time from finance to the startup world and uh, what he's doing in his day-to-day. So I would say, let's dive right in. Chris, as always, ultra happy to have you in this podcast at uh, Nonlinear and to have our regular, no, not quarterly catch-up, but like monthly catch-up happening in a recorded setting now, finally. First time for, for us doing a recorded catch up huh so no way. actually not because we like i secretly recorded one of our catch-ups with, no i actually <laughs> asked you i asked you whether i could record this catch-up with loom i must have like, consent form then <laughs> no i actually asked you um <laughs> a but a, what i just had to had to remember by the way chris also cool for background for the people out there like do you want to tell the story of how we get to know each other yeah yeah i'd love to I mean, I, I think at this point, it was a couple of years ago, I was living in Berlin. I was in my third year in Berlin um, after expecting to be living and working out there for just six months and had shifted uh, jobs and had joined uh, an early stage startup, really early stage, 10 people or so, seed stage funding uh, as chief of staff. And I was trying to connect with other chief of staffs and our mutual friend, uh, Yang Tran, was nice enough to to make the intro he's he's a master of intros so that wasn't a surprise that he got us in touch and it, it really went from there so we talked about all kinds of chief of staff related uh business but also got to know each other uh personally as well and it's been it's been fun that's been top of funnel but like mid funnel i was actually <laughs> aiming for mid funnel or bottom of the process funnel yeah i mean chama oh boy yeah later on so i think after we meet it's maybe, it's about a year in or something, maybe even less when we decided to try out a little side project together. Um, and we thought Charma, which uh, Christian, I know you came up with the name and which I really like, um, is basically Calendly 
but for dating. <laughs> I say is, it's kind of more like a was, right? <laughs> but we feel like people are inundated with matches, especially for, for women who are, are matching with men, right? And it's like, it's another inbox to manage. But like the way you really learn if you connect with someone is, is typically meeting them in person and, and seeing what happens. So we wanted to solve that customer pain point um, through kind of like this micro SaaS idea charge, you know, a few dollars per month or something. Um, the products kind of got there. We didn't really <laughs> work contribution as well as we could have, but I, I think there's still something to the idea. Man, I think it's been... Uh, yeah, like this was super cool and like there's so much to, to, to say about it, but one, just one final remark about Charma, like um, at one point I read that like everyone who wants to start a company starts with a dating product, at least every dude. Yeah. So this was like, it was of course like it, at some point it was evident that it's at least not like in a, if we stay like this and we don't raise funding or whatever and you go all in and you really try ultra hard, it's not going to um, succeed uh, right. in, in a super big way. And I think what was super fun though was with, that it, of course, it kept us busy. Like we hired bubble engineers to work with us. And uh, I always had funny things to tell at dates. I think like in the end, the girls I dated at that time, they found it shit. Uh, not kind of shit, but like it was, it was a bit odd. Like this dude working for a consumer startup, starting this app and blah, blah, blah. But uh, it was super cool. And now the, the real serious layer about also why I asked you about the intro. Um, is, man, it was for me super important to get to know you. Like, just similar to what I also commented the other day around, about or just below Ariel's post, he just raised or he just announced his uh, 6 million seed funding. You've probably seen it, right? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, super nice. And like, in this time when I quit Google and I joined Yodel, a community startup, I kind of had this fear in the beginning, like the first weeks that I was the only dude who's like daring to go into consumer social after like doing business degrees and like actually being in this not early stage world. And then when like Young was like, you should speak to Krish and I got to know you and we like shared notes on like what software we're using, what we're building, how we're measuring product market fit, what stuff we're building in Coda and stuff. And then at the same time, I also got to know Ariel, I got reconnected with Ariel. And this was like so cool for me. And it kind of like, it made this entire journey then started making sense. I'm yeah. It. Well, vice versa. Cause I, you know, living in Berlin as a non-German and just a couple of years into my, my time in Germany, like I made it a real concerted effort to go out and meet people like me, not like me. And you, I think you fell more into that, that first bucket where we just <laughs> were super simpatico on, on interests mm -hmm. and mindset, I think. So it worked out really nicely. And you mentioned the consumer focus too. It's funny, I never really planned to, to have this kind of consumer lens when, you know, even five years ago. I now work for Babbel, right? And worked for Block, which is also a consumer focused company. And uh, on the investing side had, had done some consumer deals, but it wasn't like I went in thinking B2C is the path for me. In fact, I kind of thought the opposite. I thought mm. there's a lot of potential in, in working with, uh, software businesses who sell to, to, to businesses, B2B, um, but right in, in this place today and super happy with it. But it's just, if you had told me five years ago, I would have been surprised. That's crazy. And let's go there in a sec. And um, because like, I just scrolled through your LinkedIn and I saw like already a couple of years ago, you wrote about like, I think before you joined Block, Block is like, and maybe you want to describe Block in a sentence. 
Yeah. Yeah. Block um, started probably six, seven years ago now at this point. Um, and it's basically it, the main product is called Ratio. It's for Android phones and it's, uh, it's a launcher, which basically means home screen app. So when you open your phone and you're using Ratio, the Block product, the first thing you see, and the idea is just to reorganize, easily categorize, um, simplify your home screen so that you're getting to what uh, you need from your phone within an instant. I know if you if you open the the standard like iPhone today, it's just a it's a ton of colors. It's a mess of notifications. It's you get so easily distracted, um, and we were solving that problem. We hit about a million installs, and and the company kind of isn't what it is what it used to be um, as far as the uh, the setup, we kind of winded down operations, but the product's still out there and, and will probably mm. be out there for a bit of time. Yeah, that's uh, that's also exciting to hear, but, let, but let's jump there in a sec. Like, um, what I wanted to say is that you you already, before you joined Block, you actually started writing articles for Speed Invest about consumer mm. and social and like media, I think. And so right. you more or less paved your own way into it. I think a few, like there's only a few, it seems to me the hypothesis is that a few, only very few people know, I really want to do X, Y, Z. And through creation, which is kind of like the number one common thread, by the way, across all of the podcast episodes I've done, like 50% or more than 40% of the people have started publishing and content creating at some point. You create your own destiny at some point, you know? Totally. And that's what you did. I think you have to make stuff in order to learn how to do it, right? Which is maybe the reverse for other people's process where they'll observe, they'll watch, and then they'll do. Um, I forget who said this. It might be some old proverb or story or something, but there's basically uh, a guy who makes, you know, two people are, are tasked to go make the best piece of uh, pottery ever. And one is asked to just mm. get one spot on goal. You just have to create the best thing you can with one attempt and the other person just make like a thousand in a row. And the, of course, the person who makes a thousand ends up with the better piece of pottery. The first few that they make look like they look really bad, uh, but you get there eventually. So I think it's, it's just that is you, you have to make something, put it out into the world, get feedback on it and just iterate. Um, and even though I didn't, I think that consumer social, it was like an audio focused. It was like the future of consumer involves audio, involves other you know, interesting four factors, I guess you could say. Um, it wasn't like the best piece of writing I've put together, but it did lead to a bunch of interesting introductions. People read it apparently and reached out to me. And, um, you know, you're mentioning it now today, like five years later. So. Mm. It happens to, to many people who are telling me about the content pieces. Alex Say also said like he wrote a piece five years ago and he today still gets intros because of that. Mm. And what do you, what do you mention? I love it uh, with the iterations because Naval also says this. He's like, it's also not about 1000 hours or 10,000 hours. It's about 1000 iterations. I don't right. care about the hours. I care about the iterations. This is so cool. Like to think about, okay, complete a product, one iteration, and then just do it all over again. Right. Totally. And, uh, I mean, hours is an input and then iterations is more like an output. Right. So you, mm -hmm. you focus on the inputs. And I think that's always super, super wise. But um, yeah, if you can get to like high volume output, then that's the real goal, right? Yeah, nice. A, so we have um, three big topics we want to touch up on. Well, like, I don't know how big the, the topics will be. That Like there's three interesting uh, topics we made, we uh, spotted. So number one is the chronology or chronolo chronology. 
of your of your CV and what you've done so far and who you are and wh where you've worked and what your like your background is just super interesting. The second one is like the multiple shifts you've done through all of this, which is like geography wise. I mean, probably people already hear it in the podcast. You're not German, uh, although having worked and lived in Berlin and worked for German com or working for a German company. And then we also double click on marketing tactics. And uh, Chris, I would say, why don't we just deep, di deep dive into uh, your story, man, your CV in audio. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, I was raised in California, right? So like close to, I don't know, some people call it the epicenter of, of tech, right? Silicon Valley and loved that upbringing. But with my parents who, who grew up in, in not the US, like they both had uh, really spent their upbringing in, in the UK. I knew that there was kind of more out there in the world that I, I wanted to see. And so uh, in university, I really liked the idea of working in, in finance and, and living in, in San Francisco. And that's what I did for a couple of years and learned so much from it and was around incredibly talented, bright people. And really, you know, I got a kick out of it. The learning curve was was like that, you know, is was, was really um, uh, steep. And eventually wanted to get out to, to do a master's. Uh, that was kind of always part of the plan for me. I have a, I don't know, an educational plan. I think some people are purely practical and they love it. I love to think about theories and look at research every now and then. So I went to do my master's in economics. And also the second goal with that was like broaden my network, like get out of the States, go meet people who are super different from me, see what I can pick up. And then one day bring that back home with me too. Um, so I did my master's in Netherlands, one year, of course, in, in, in Europe, uh, learning was not enough, uh, needed more time out there to really, uh, build my network and, and learn as much as possible. And so then I went to go work for a seed stage fund called Speed Invest in, in But this is already su super fast now. I think we don't even have to do it that, that fast. Like there's many, many things to, to, to dive into. And I would really like to do this, like. Let's maybe do a quick thing about the finance world. Like what exactly did you do? And then why, like it seemed like story-wise, how long did you stay? One, two years? And then why did you uh, pivot away from finance? Two years. Two years in uh, in asset management, basically. And um, it scratched the itch I had in, in university of, of like, I want to work in a finance role that is like really broad and you get exposure to a bunch of different things, especially with, you know, managing, co-managing a couple billion dollars of assets for a client. Like we weren't parking all the money in one asset, one asset class even, right? So we're looking at what should, do, what should we do with our public fixed income exposure? What should we do with, um, you know, our private equity uh, kind of fund of funds? So we're getting exposure to literally everything. Uh, and especially at the time, this was like the mid 2010s, like there was this big sweeping adoption of the Yale uh, endowment model, which is like take on illiquid investments when possible. You're going to get an illiquidity premium uh, by plugging money into venture funds and to, to growth funds, to bio funds. Um, so a lot of my work was, was like placing these private funds, not public, you know, hedge fund exposure. Of private funds into a client's portfolio and then also making sure that they had mm. liquid assets to fund their personal endeavors, often charity. You got a whole bunch of illiquid assets that you hope to expect, you really expect to see good returns from. And then more liquid um, assets, we call it the barbell. So liquid, illiquid, mm. uh, where you're optimizing for returns, but still satisfying client needs for, 
for often like charitable reasons. Really, really cool work. I mean, there's infinite depth intellectually there. But for me, it's you were giving money to the person who then gave money to the person who then gave money to the person who went off and built something. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it didn't quite scratch the edge that I, in a way that I thought it would. So the next step was like, okay, who did we, as an asset manager, who did we give money to? We gave it to, for example, a venture fund. Okay, well, who does the venture fund give money to? Entrepreneurs who actually build things. So mm -hmm. going to work for a seed stage fund was like the next step closer to people who were really day by day building really interesting stuff. And how did you think about those steps? Like when you're, when you're already in those finance jobs in the finance world and you're doing a good jobs and you're having cool colleagues and you're earning quite good money, like, yes, you still had the joker of like doing a master's, but like how much pain versus just free play and like joy like how joyful was it to leave this world again was it easy or was it rather hard or like what was that you know what i mean uh leaving leaving that world yeah i mean it was it was tough it was tough because it was something i had set my sights on since i was you know even a teenager in university right you're like 19 thinking about what you want to do with your life and i was mm -hmm. like oh i spent years decades doing this so i spent two years doing it and already pivoted uh which is not easy <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, it felt a bit necessary to, to like, A, do that thing I mentioned of getting closer to builders, people, yeah. and, and B, working in a totally different part of the world and, and meeting people who were different from me. And just one other question, like, what's your parents' background? Do you think they influenced you in either of those things, finance or entrepreneurship? A little bit. Like, my immediate family's background is pretty it's it's tech so i'm in tech today and we have that similarity um but they were always more engineer focused like my my dad his degree was in civil engineering um so not mm -hmm. not like software right it was you know he thought he might go build bridges for example um mm -hmm. my mom uh he, and they both worked in, what's up is he building bridges no no he they both work at intel now both my parents ah uh, nice we are actually building bridges We are building yeah. bridges, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm not at horrible bridges, yeah. Um, but uh, tech was around us. I mean, like going to high school in Palo Alto, that was, it was right mm -hmm. there. My parents would go to Intel offices every day and um, they liked what they did. And I got to see them, you know, come back happy or maybe less happy on certain days and just hear about what happens um, at a high, high level and just try to understand it. Uh, Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I think to grow up in a business and tech family, like it's you kind of get the not the you get the behind the curtain glance, right? Yeah, straight from the straight from day one. So which is super cool. And their philosophy was like it's so super interesting to from 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 how I grew up. So I can't I, I can somehow imagine it, of course, but I don't. Yeah. I haven't experienced it for granted because you grow up and you, you know what you know at that time. You don't really understand how different other people's upbringings can be. But their philosophy was, mm -hmm. my parents' philosophy was like, we're going to bring home the latest gadgets or just cool stuff to play with. And like, maybe that'll, mm -hmm. you know, light the fire. They'll be like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to spend more time on my own just learning about it. So um, that was great. I, the, the really great thing about my parents, though, was that... Um, despite the focus of tech and business in their lives, they never really pushed it on us as kids to, to me and, and my two siblings, mm -hmm. my sister and brother. Um, 
you know, when I, when I did work the really intense San Francisco finance job, uh, I remember my mom who would see me, you know, I'd tell her about the hours or whatever time I got back home. She'd be like, oh, you know, you can, you can go spend like, you're young. You can go spend a few years in Bali surfing and just be like, like learn yoga, just, just hang out. You don't have to do this. And I was like, yeah, but I, I want to. So there was, there was always like, you know, uh, an awareness of like, hey, do what you, you love. It wasn't really well. Like, do what we did as parents. You, you should like, you know, have your own path. So great. This is great insight, man. This is super, super sick to hear. Hey, uh, what do your siblings do? <laughs> My brother's uh, now in university. He ended up at the same uh, school that I went to in uh, Santa Clara University in, in California. Mm -hmm. And uh, my sister started a company. So she's, uh, she's also gone the, the, tech, the techie route. Um, she's, I mean, she started this company th three, four years ago, mm -hmm. uh, really with the hub in Southeast Asia. So I thought I was doing something adventurous by going to, to Western Europe, but she's really, you know, mm -hmm. out there uh, as far as, you know, if you start in California, I think being in Myanmar for a few years and building a business out there is really, you're on the, you're on the frontier versus where you, you started. Yeah, it reminds me of my Kathmandu, Kathmandu experience, which mm -hmm. was only like, you know it, right? I told you probably a couple you of told times. Me about it. It's one of my trademark stories with Rocket Internet in 2015, couple of oh, to Kathmandu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, Man, like striking about what you're saying is that your family is like purely international and purely global, which like brings us to, so there's like this mix of like, your family's academic, it seems like academic, global, free-spirited, which is super, super nice to hear. And um, which brings us to the next point, like how do you come up with the idea of going to the Netherlands? Um, I had, there was an older classmate of mine who graduated university before me and she had done her master's out there. I chatted with her like, what's it like to go do school out there? You know, what are the people like? What did you learn? And she only had really good things to say. Um, and I was really, uh, I have been really an economics geek. And so reading the, the latest behavioral economics books, so meshing psychology and, and economics together. Um, I looked at what schools are, are known to have great professors for, for that field. And like in Rotterdam, Netherlands, Erasmus University was really one of the best for this. So I, for me, it was a, a, a chance to spend one year out there learning from the best of the best in this field, see how they, um, really get into their craft and, and take something away from that, uh, worked out really well. And didn't you consider like, didn't you consider doing it at Yale or something? Cause I they, with like Kahneman and. They would stay for really also the exactly yeah I, I I thought about doing that but then it wouldn't satisfy the need of getting out of the U.S. for for some time um, yeah there's a chance of yeah. continuing okay, get the, it. the educational path and like trying for a PhD in econ but that's I don't have the stomach for that mm -hmm. um. Okay, so let's fast forward now. You're going to Europe. You're like, okay, I need to move down the, the value chain of create or the, the chain of value creation, more or less, move more towards the creators. And then you started Speed Invest. With Speed Invest, it was, uh, it was fresh. It's like a Vienna-based investment fund. We were on like fund two at the time. And not that many people in Europe or worldwide knew the, the brand and like in an in venture branding is a huge element of getting 
strong entrepreneurs to accept money from you and work with you. So that was a new challenge. And I think uh, I was person number three in Berlin. So it was like me, the partner, the principal, uh, building IKEA furniture in the Berlin office just to get things up and running and then like trying to build a brand for ourselves. And that was super exciting. That was really, really Mm -hmm. good. Which year was that? And how did you get in touch with them? Like, how did I mean, it's a super cool role, right? And I would probably also hire an American for it to be like the founding employee in a, in a VC fund. Super nice. Yeah. Because you also bring this, this expertise, a different kind of view, some sparks, some magic dust, right? Like, yeah. um, but like, how did you get in touch with them? I, um, like at the end of my grad school experience. We had to write a thesis and in my thesis, I wanted to apply something from psychology and economics into the, the venture world. So I wanted to measure basically risk preferences of VCs around Europe and, and say, okay, within, you know, what factors will predict how risk averse or risk seeking a venture investor is. Um, and so that also meant I was able to create a survey and send it out to a bunch of interesting investors around the continent and that also, of course, got me in touch with these really great people and just have coffee chats, uh, which sometimes turn into job interviews. And in the case of Speed Invest, I don't think it worked through that funnel, so to say. But I got in touch with uh, the partner in Berlin, Matthias Salkenfels, and we just had, we had a Zoom conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I learned so much within half an hour mm-hmm. and had fun at the same time. I was like, wow, I got to go work for this guy. Sick, sick. Man, cool. Like it's another tool you're dropping. Like the, the, one of the, um, things which I'm introducing throughout the, throughout the podcast series is like TT tangible takeaways. And so you basically gave me the second iteration or gave us the second iteration now on publishing. It's not only about publishing, it's database publishing with inclusion of your target group. So, you know, like it's exactly the story, which Ariel told us, by the way, what you're just saying. So you published your master thesis and involved other people and Ariel did the same without involving the other people though and Nick also made it downloadable so downloadable so it's super cool to hear this um cool and then from speed invest sorry actually on that note that that's been a big thing for me where if you double down on your interests you're satisfying a future need while also filling a current one so in in that case that I just talked about Yes, I was getting my thesis done on something I really, really thought was interesting, but I was also getting ready for the next career step by talking to people that I wanted to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in that, that's always been a thing for me, doubling down on, on your interests because it's going to help you now and probably later too. Strong, pretty nice. Um, hey, and then you decided to do a second iteration. Like after a while, you were like, yo, got the investing game. Let's get operational, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was the next step, right? So go from investing in in venture funds as part of work earlier to working at a venture fund and backing entrepreneurs to working specifically with great entrepreneurs. And that was the first non-product hire at uh, at Block. And uh, it was, I mean, what a ride. You learn so much. The, the title was chief of staff, as you mentioned, but the the responsibilities are totally split between um, some of the finance, investor relations stuff, the marketing work, like getting that from scratch to somewhere, uh, some of the ops work, um, leading a team. It was, it was fun. What was the status quo of Block when you joined? How large was the company and how, um, 
how was your situation at Block when you started? How many people, like you just mentioned the top level now, but what did your first six months actually look like? First six months, I mean, the first few months, it's identifying the biggest points of leverage. So what does the business need to accomplish soon? And like, what can I do to, to get us there? As chief of staff, you're uniquely positioned to do that because other people might be working on one piece of the product and that's their, their silo in a sense. Um, and then it was learning ASAP, like how to get this stuff done. So I'm talking with the best marketers I know, the best, uh, finance, you know, people I know from, from startups, um, you know, implementing best practices from there. Cause we, in a lot of cases, we had no existing practice, forget best practice. There wasn't an existing mm -hmm. practice. It was like get that up to speed. Um, in in the first six months, that's what it's about, and making sure that um, CEO who I, I worked with, uh, Adam, like knew I was there to support him, um, could like double if not triple his output. Um, that was that was mostly mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, and how many people were you in the team? About ten. Okay, and you're the only non-tech hire, or non non-product hire, yeah. Okay, super nice. And then you stay like two years, you organize the chief of staff roundtables. And then, I mean, and this also brings us then again to the like, to the second bigger topic, like the entire shift in which we're actually already implicitly being around. Like then at some point you're like, why do you quit block and switch to bubble? And like, how tough is this decision-making process? Or how do you go about the decision-making process, the opportunity creation with bubble and this switch now, now you're in marketing. And you're the, I, as I understand, you're the growth, growth lead, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So how did this entire thing happen? I, um, you know, as block started to, to slowly wind down, um, all of us were, were thinking about what's, what's happening next. Why did and block wind down by the way? It's the usual startup story, right? Where like we, you could say cash flow. Right, like at a certain point, runway has to end if you're not profitable. And we had a prof, uh, a path to profitability, uh, but I would say it was conversion was the main thing. We had a ton of installs that would come in, people who really, they heard about the product, they thought the product was awesome from an idea perspective, but to get them to pay was the next step. Um, and that's always tricky. Eventually that becomes the main issue. And then if you can't get over that hurdle, then it's it's tough. And also like, it was a six year journey, seven year journey, maybe where, you know, the founder started it and it was, it was intense. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot to, you have to really think, is this, is this for me? Um, and then for Babel, um, I got in touch with, um, the growth people there because I was following, um, one of them, reading their newsletter, uh, tracking their blog, just to learn about best growth practices, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one day, uh, Sylvan, this guy at Babel posted that he was hiring for someone to come work with him and, and basically be the first hire, first growth hire for, for Babel Live, uh, live online language courses uh, in Americas. And I said, that sounds pretty exciting. It's like a startup within a company that's been around for a while, call mm -hmm. it Gala, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And I just reached out to him and we had a great chat. And I really liked getting to know him and the rest of the team. And, and then I was starting uh january 2023 sick but moving moving back again right to the us then yeah like how, i was i mean i of course experienced it we had a couple of dinners 
buy dinner, this and that and here and there. And like, how do you feel about this shift now? Is Berlin super far away or like, um, you know what I mean? Yeah. For every six months that goes by, it feels like Berlin is a bit further away. You know, as time goes forward, that just mm. happened. The good thing is the headquarters of Babel is in Berlin. Uh, just total coincidence. I still get to maintain ties there and, and often work with people in, in our Berlin office. So it, it is nice to kind of keep, you know, ties that way. Um, but who knows in the future, I might be back in Europe for some time working on, uh, uh, working on stuff that Babel needs me to do. Um, so this is, I don't have a, a definitive location plan, so to say, it's just going where interesting work is happening. Yeah. Nice. Got it. So it would, would also be interesting to understand whether your iterations on like getting more on the, on, on the entrepreneurial route will at one day finish with you being on, not finish with you being on but that you're at this stage. But hey, for now, let's, let's now, I would say, let's now quickly uh, touch up on the, or let's move into the marketing tactics. Like, so what I understood is that at growth, you had first touch point with, touch points with, okay, how do I actually run a company? How do I prioritize? How do I build product and at the same time also market it? And now you basically double clicked on like the marketing part of things. Like you're not building features, but you're, um, yeah, making sure that you get enough traffic on Bubble Life, keeping up retention, I guess. Like, it'd be super nice if you could just describe what your KPIs and your North Stars are, how your collaboration with your manager works, um, how you educate yourself, like all of three, all of these uh, points. So the most surprising thing about growth marketing that I wouldn't have known some years ago, and maybe a lot of people still don't know, is that when you thing you're about to run an a b test of a new you know piece of copy a page format to try and help users progress through a funnel whatever you think the outcome is going to be you really don't know for sure you like you really could mm. be off so a b testing becomes super crucial like we'll yeah. always have hypotheses about oh yeah of course if we um set up the marketing funnel this way users are going to better understand what Babel Live is, they'll be more likely to, to eventually purchase and really engage in class. And then we could be so off, you know? Mm -hmm. So you, we lean on data all the time is what I'm saying. It's like you can have intuition hypotheses, but like the number of times you could be surprised at how often it is, is, is crazy. Even for, for experts, for senior people who have been doing this for years, they, they say the same thing. Um, that's a good muscle to flex is being data-driven and and testing mm -hmm. the heck out of everything. And we're not the only ones who do it. It's more standard practice now. Um, but I think Pavel's got that muscle, which is is fantastic. So I spend a lot of time testing things, which we just see where they end up and then and then roll it out. Um, where exactly do your test starts start? Like, do they start with your landing pages, with ads, with uh, geographies, channels? Like, where do you where it, does it start? Where does it end? Where's the focus for now? This is the really fun part of my job, which is that it's a team of, of one in America's working on growth for Babel Live. And everything Super. you just mentioned, it's me. <laughs> um, that could change in the future, right? but for now it's me. But everything you just mentioned is open to testing. So then it's like your world is, your scope could be infinite. And then it's about, okay, what are the, the next three things for the, the upcoming quarter that we're going to focus on? Because we have beliefs about um, changing the ad creative on Facebook, like that can move the needle for us because we're going to better showcase the project, uh, the product, uh, Babel Live mm -hmm. and, uh, drive more conversion that way. That's mm -hmm. one realm, right? 
The good thing is Babbel has an existing brand. It's massive. People know about it. It's a category leader in uh, the language learning space. So we can leverage that. I mean, we get a ton of traffic already and maybe not everyone has heard about Babbel Live, but they know the app. They know and love the app. They're here to, to try that out and buy it. So we can say, okay, you love the app. Well, you think you're going to try it out, but what about live, like live online mm-hmm. language learning? Like this is a great way to learn faster, learn more effectively, mm-hmm. build a relationship with people around the world who are also learning um, and, and like, you know, work with tutors who, who really know what they're doing. Um, and 90%, at least 90% of the spend in the language learning market happens in live formats. Oh, like wow. All this, all this work on language learning apps is great, but there's a, there's a cap on that. So, you, you know, if you really want to be the category leader in language learning, um, an emphasis on live is, is like pretty much necessary. When did you introduce a product? Two years ago? Two years ago. Yeah. And like, so when, when I'm thinking of life, I'm thinking of what not also, of course, of TikTok um, and also balloons <laughs> appearing and also of like communities, of course, because I have lots about communities and, and things like how much of these, um, like how much do you look at other players and what they're doing and like what are how are you mo- like are you monetizing life in any certain or specific way or like something to 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 take away from here or to learn you know what I mean? Big thing like for us is um, a lot like a TikTok of... you have those live coins or whatever and you comment and this and that and I mean it, bubble life is probably one on one, but asking is there like any yeah anything to to know or to understand yeah. We do, uh, we run group classes, like maximum of six people in a, in a class with a tutor. Mm-hmm. And um, what's good about that is you can get intra-class engagement, like you're with peers and then, you know, mm-hmm. it becomes a lively or friendly atmosphere depending on the classroom. But ultimately, you want people to really, you know, love and respect their tutor in a way that you know, they're just going to come back to the next class ASAP because they want to spend time with the tutor. They want to get better at learning the language. So we try to drive engagement that way. One unlock for us, which I can mention, which I think answers your point around monetization, is we used to do credits pay per class mm-hmm. for, for these online courses, uh, online classes. And uh, that's what the industry standard is, right? You look at the others who are doing this. That's what they do, pay per class, match with the tutor. But we're, we're an unlimited, now we're an unlimited, all you can eat subscription model. Like if you mm-hmm. sign up, hey, you can take a ton of classes to learn faster, more effectively. Um, and that's a different offering. Like that's a truly differentiated offering. Even if it's a business model difference, it's a big difference for customers. So for monetization, like things like that can go a long, long way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like what we, or what I mentioned earlier is like the, the management style of like, switching from speed invest or from VC to a startup to a scale up. Like how do you, how did this actually change? It's everything as advertised, right? So people talk about progressing or switching between small companies to big companies and vice versa. And they'll say, oh, if you go to a bigger company, you'll have more internal infrastructure resources to get stuff done. But you spend more time on alignment and internal reporting to get everyone on the same page. And there's always competing priorities, especially when you're the upstart product. Live is the new product within the Babel organization. We have this 
core product, the app, which sells wonderfully and has done amazing things. Uh, but there's competing priorities for that. So that's all as advertised, like, uh, spend time on internal alignment in the scale up, right? Like mm -hmm. get people on the same page, move in the same direction. Whereas at a 10 person startup and past experiences, we, we'd have an idea. We just go do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. We just go do it. And, uh, it might take just me to do it. It might take one other person or sometimes the whole team, but we get results fast. Um, we still get results pretty fast at Babel, I'd say, but the trade-offs are, are as advertised, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And how do you, like, I, I know that you bought the Reforge membership or you got into Reforge before you started at Bubble, right? Or when you started or like, I don't know, like around this time, if I can mention this. Um, how do you educate yourself? Like, is there lots of education within the company happening? You mentioned that you did lots of best practice grabbing left and right when you were at, at Block, but does this also happen at Babel or is there more internal knowledge and like people like Lenny Rachitsky within the company who you can ask? Yeah, I mean, the best thing is the, um, the person who I came to work with, Sylvan, who I mentioned with the newsletter, he's like a fantastic resource. He's kind of like an internal Lenny in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like he sits next to me, I chat with him, I ask him questions, maybe too many questions and, uh, we love it. So that's, that's really, really good. Often you'll have to learn, look externally to learn about what other companies are doing and, or how others have frameworks for marketing, for example. So I'm trying to read as much as possible and it's still the same. It's often the same newsletters I used to read when I was at Block. And luckily a lot of the lessons there still apply. Nice. So that is what's nice when you can make these shifts and still have truisms that apply in both cases. And I found that to, to often be true. Yeah. These are also the, the closing questions now, like in, in the book, seven habits of highly effective people, they say it was just a super cool book with a, in my opinion, a bit too, too clickbaity title. And they say real change can only be endured if there's a motionless core inside of the person doing the change. Like what's your motionless core? Mm. Motionless core. You have basically some inherent principles or ideas that you hold on to. It sounds like. Values, principles, ideas, patterns, baselines, which basically always happen in whatever you're doing. For me, I've always felt that at the core, people want to be respected, understood, well-treated, right? And have purpose. So for, for in a professional context. You can work really well with people if you understand what their interests, motivations are and, and speak to them. I've got my interests and motivations. Like I want them to be heard. Others have the same thing and they're equally valid. You can meet people from all walks of life, different countries. Um, but there's still, some, you can, you can find drive. You can find motivation in pretty much anyone. It's just a matter of where and how. So I've, I've never really understood of, um, you know, when, when a manager or anyone would evaluate someone professionally and say, oh, they just don't have it. You know, there's maybe not mm -hmm. drive for motivation. I think there's, there's something there. You just got to pull it out of them. Um, and that's, you know, there's, a there's, um, you have to pull it out of yourself often too, right? It's not about someone else coming and doing it for you, but to disregard, um, someone else, I think is, often that can happen too quickly. Right. Like everyone has something they really care about and you can pull it out of them.
like how do how do you apply this to the motionless call like the question how i intended it was rather like what stays same in all of these changes in krish like how like what's the number one thing which re has remained the same across all of those years right and this could be this attitude right that you figured this about yourself out like it is this it's it's the fact that if i feel um frustration misunderstanding when working with others as we all do at certain points i mm. find it now and nowadays way more easy to take a step back and say okay but they've got their own agenda motivations understanding of the same project of the same problem um so i can minimize any frustration or misunderstanding by just trying to build a better bridge right i can say okay what what do they really want what am i missing here i don't have to pin it on the other person i can say what am i missing here and just try to foster more understanding i don't know if i would have had that understanding you know a few years ago before working in vastly different companies working with vastly different cultures uh, maybe i would but i think i really benefited it's a great point and i think it also applies to you as a like as a private yeah, in private life because you always have a very calm and objective view on situations which is super super cool i just remember our time in new york uh, where we had a couple of fun conversations with a friend of ours very last question krish where are you in five years what are you doing uh building whether it's within the scale up organization right which when you're in fantastic um or or doing something else a bit more solo or with with another team but i think it's it's building and tackling a clear customer problem which sounds so businessy corporate <laughs> yeah there's a ton like it's cliche it's said a lot but i think there's there's truth to it that's why it's said a lot if you solve someone's problem for them and they give you something in return for it it's super gratifying yeah, nice. Very last question. What are you most excited about? What's happening either for you privately or in the world right now? Yeah, I think the world is becoming a super connected place, like increasingly day by day. So people need to learn mm -hmm. language to better understand each other. Uh, my wife is from another country. I'm learning, you know, her native language, uh, Swedish. And that's just one example of this, right? Like, you know, these relationships cross continent, cross country are happening more and more. Um, and we're, I'm going to lean into that and I hope other people do too. Awesome. Thank you very much, Chris. All right. Thanks. Talk to you. Thanks for listening to Nonlinear. If you like the content, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify. Follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. That's at IamKrishi3. Three is the number and Krishi with S-C-H-I. Reach out on any of the platforms if you have comments, questions, or just want to chat.